and welcome to Mythmakers, the podcast for fantasy fans and creatives, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding, a writer and director of the centre, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Joe Gallagher, a veteran of the TV and film industry and a great friend to me and the centre. So, Joe. Well, hi, Julia. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It's a complete pleasure. So before we go on to chat about fantasy, I thought we would start by outline, outlining for listeners a few things about your career. So if you don't mind, this is the this is your life moment. So Joe <laughs> went to Harvard Law, <laughs> the very prestigious Harvard, Harvard Law, uh, but he left the law behind to eventually work on the production side of the movie industry. He started out in Universal Pictures and rose up to be president of the Industrial Light and Magic, ILM, which people will know as the the place that developed and produced all the effects for the Star Wars films and many other films. Joe also served as corporate vice president of 20th Century Fox Film Corporation and as senior vice president of production and administration for 20th Century Fox Pictures. Now, they're all very familiar names to everybody, but what that really means is Joe was responsible for creative affairs, strategic planning, and the oversight of the Fox Studio operations, developing and supervising many Fox films. So getting to know Joe, for me, has been one of the unexpected delights rising out of our attempt to honour Tolkien and establish a literary centre in his honour here in Oxford. There are many other things to say about Joe, but about time I um, asked him a question so he could tell us about himself. So, Joe, many of us who are listening to this, both as um, those who are aspiring to write fantasy and those who just love it, are absolutely intrigued by what goes on behind the scenes of making films. Looking back over your career of content making, movie making, what are the big fantasy films that you've personally had the most involvement with? Well, I think the Star Wars movies are certainly the ones that that mean the most to me, uh, partly because I do think they were brilliant, that I do think George Lucas and the team he put together were, were, not were, are extraordinarily gifted, and uh, also the impact they've had. I mean, it is a delight to me and all of us who were involved in the early days of Star Wars to see the extent to which that brand has been so well received around the world and has truly had a, a positive impact on the zeitgeist. I think most people would say that the uh, the sensibility of Star Wars, of imagination, of underdogs fighting for good is something that has made the world a better place. So I'm grateful for that. Plus a lot of creative satisfaction being with uh, extraordinarily gifted people. So Joe, were you involved in the very first films? I know that the numbering in the Star Wars system um, is a little bit confusing with episodes four, five, and six being the first ones. Were those the ones you were involved in, or was it the one, two, three? Well, it, yes, it was the earlier ones, and, and then some of the later ones as well, but certainly the early ones, the ones that I guess we'd say starting with, with five, uh, mean the most to me because it was brand new. I was very young. Uh, of course, I was very young or else I'd be dead by now. I was very fortunate to be to have a good position at Fox in my mid to late 20s and to be involved with 
some of the selection of our movies. My boss, Alan Ladd Jr., who was the president of Fox, certainly is the person corporately who deserves the most credit for his relationship with George and for uh, making sure Star Wars was stewarded well. But it was uh, exciting. It was exciting in part because it was brave and it was exciting in part because it was surprising at every step along the way. Science fiction as a genre was not particularly a point of enthusiasm for the movie studios in the late 1970s. Science fiction films had not done well. So there was definitely an industry skepticism about a science fiction film, especially one like this that really didn't have any major box office stars and that had, to the extent that the script was leaked or people knew what it was about, it seemed a a bit strange. And there were lots of negative rumors floating around that. But certainly George and the producer, Gary Kurtz, and others uh, guarded their secrets well. And uh, contrary to some reports, I think that the film enjoyed a lot of support from Fox. And I think most of us were uh, highly enthusiastic, although a bit on the edge of our seats because the scenes were filmed without effects, of course. So there was a huge leap of faith, leap of trust in what George was doing. But we had the good fortune, I particularly, of seeing what was being done at Industrial Light Magic and seeing the uh, the type of effects that were being created and what that might mean, and that it would be a, a generational leap for movies. So we were uh, we were excited. We were a little bit scared. Fox was not in a good financial position at that time, so the company had quite a bit riding on on this movie. Put out. 20 to 25 movies a year, but this was one that a lot of importance was attached to. So, yeah, it was a, an exciting time. And as we saw different pieces of it, we became became thrilled, certainly thrilled with the special effects, certainly thrilled when we heard John Williams score for the first time, which sent a, a chill down my spine, still does, actually. In fact, when I hear either the Star Wars score or the Fox logo, Maybe I'm just an old sentimentalist, but those both still are meaningful to me. And you've got the advantage of having had a very long-term perspective on um, the development of fantasy films. Do you ever stop and sort of ask yourself, is there anything unfilmable now? Because George Lucas said, right, we're going to go into space and do a serious film set in space. And I imagine there were a few skeptics that were possible. Whereas today, everyone says, yes, of course, we can put that on blue screen, green screen, in a computer environment. Do you think we've now reached the point where anything works on film? I think everything physical works. Uh, That doesn't mean everything emotional works. I don't think we have computer graphics that can capture the human spirit. So I think uh, capturing what's internal still remains something that only very gifted writers and performers and directors can can capture. That's never going to come through the technology side, I don't believe. But in terms of physical representations, yeah, I think probably everything's possible right now. I'm very reassured that there's going to be a place for writers in the future. A place for writers? Oh, my goodness. I think, you know, certainly a number of people have said creativity is the highest form of intelligence. Within that, I have a special soft spot for literary creativity. Uh, my greatest joy at Fox for a long time was working with writers, and everyone knows it starts with the blank page and it starts with the word. 
whether it's uh, the Bible or Star Wars or or any any work starts with a with a word and with a page. Uh, I think there'll always be a place for writers. I think maybe the definition of writers has been uh, beautifully expanded by technolo- tech- technological progress, so that writers can be uh, perhaps defined not just in traditional ways of those who create the words, but those who write the uh, write the images. I, I would certainly consider some of our, our tech guys to be writers, even though they're not uh, not putting words on a page the way people like you do, Julia. <laughs> Thanks. So, Joe, I want to take you back in time to the sort of late 70s, early 80s. And when you then moved over to working for uh, ILM, what was that like? How did your, what I'm imagining are fairly geeky folk on the computer side, how did they work with the creatives? And if you were involved in making that relationship work, did you find you had the job of like an interpreter or was everyone pointed in the same direction? How did that all work? No, I, I don't think anyone, everyone was pointed in the same in the same direction, but maybe they saw the same distant point on the horizon where they hoped to go. Uh, you know, when you talk about the creatives, and of course you're referring to the the writers, the directors, filmmakers, but I think the uh, the tech guys, the computer guys and girls, I shouldn't say guys, the computer people would very much think of themselves as being the creatives as well. And uh, while traditionally we thought of the creatives as being the, the writers, the directors, the actors, if you look at the Pixar movies, certainly the writers are the creatives, but those who create those images are as well. So in terms of Star Wars and how people got along, there was a good degree of separation between the technology people and the people who were involved with the product, the physical production of the movie, whether those are those who wrote it or directors, actors, whatever. So there was not a, a lot of personal inter, interaction. But I don't think there was any sense of competition. I think there was a sense of mutuality and a sense that each of their contributions was going to make it better. I think their sense of competition or jealousy or suspicion was more always directed toward the corporate side, toward what people call the suits, uh, the money people or the legal people. So I think the creatives verbally and the creatives technically both had some suspicion of the suits. And of course, the suits had great suspicion of those other people, those creatives who were doing strange things, especially in the early days of ILM, where corporate side was skeptical that money was being poured down a hole that no one knew what was going to uh, ever ever emerge from it it was uh, drilling in a field that had not been very well very well researched but i, I going back to your question no i think the technology people and the liter- literary people are pretty much allies in in most cases i think where they might diverge is in a sense of what makes the movie special and each would probably like to claim claim that her or his side of it had more to do with the totality than the other. I think part of the the charm or the magic of the Star Wars movies is certainly they were visually astonishing, especially for their time when the first Star Wars movie came out in 77. When people saw that, there was always a, a gasp in the theater that people had never seen something like that before. I do think in many ways, Star Wars was the most visually revolutionary movie of all time. So that was uh, thrilling, but none of that would have mattered if the story wasn't solid. And I think part of the gift of George and other people close to him 
was that they made the uh, made the story work. I completely agree with, about the importance of the visual effect of it because yeah. I remember going as a, a little little kid <laughs> to watch Star Wars, and there were two things which I can remember. So I would have been nine or ten. I can remember the desert landscapes because I'd been used to watching the BBC <laughs> Doctor Who, which was always in a quarry in Wales, That's it funny. seemed. You know, it was sort of never huge landscapes like yes. that, the kind of things that you might have seen in a David Lean film or something that was so spectacular. And the other part was the the way, I think there's a shot with the ship arriving sort of behind you and it sort of goes, yes. a spaceship, and it sort of approaches and you see a little bit and it gets bigger and bigger and it's like a flyover. And the effect of seeing that, I didn't want to know that this was a miniature in a, I wanted to believe I was out in space. And of course, at that moment in the theater, you are. And that's where the writing and the special effects have completely worked together and gone hand in hand. Yes. No, that was a magic moment. That was at the very beginning of the film. And I think from that point on, George had had the audience. There was a wow factor within the first 90 seconds and uh, people wanted to continue on the ride. Completely. So uh, in addition to Star Wars, looking sort of later in your career, were there other films that were strongly reliant on fantasy um, that you were involved with? Or was it that the main fantasy franchise for you? Well, you know, I was on and off at Fox for, for a long time. I was there when... Uh, when Fox produced Avatar. Ah. So Avatar was certainly a movie that had enormous success and uh, proud of that. I I was much closer to the Star Wars movies mm. than I was to Avatar, so I can't claim any direct credit for anything that achieved. But again, like Star Wars, uh, we had in James Cameron uh, a uniquely compelling creator who had a very strong vision and uh, Fought, fought for it and uh, made it work. A difference between Cameron and George Lucas is that uh, Cameron probably had more uh, strength behind him at that point because of a longer track record of success. George had done American Graffiti, which certainly did quite well, but there was some skepticism of whether that fairly small personal period movie prepared somebody to direct a huge and uh, by those standards, reasonably expensive science, science fiction movie. But uh, so George had uh, his run-ins with the studios and various things. James Cameron did as well, but they were, they were quite different. Uh, I won't say James Cameron is a bully because that's unfair. He's a very smart man. He's a gentleman, but he's extremely strong-willed and he would fight aggressively for every tooth and nail. George, much more diplomatic, much more laid back, relied more on uh, on surrogates, on uh, wonderful people like his lawyer, Tom Pollack, his lawyer, Tom Pollack, who later became my lawyer, later became longtime chairman of Universal Studios. Unfortunately, Tom died last year. But uh, George had a good group of, uh, of knights who would go out on his on his behalf. Uh, the other thing is that Star Wars established a genre. So George was fighting a preconception that his genre was commercially perilous, while Cameron's movies were in a, an atmosphere 
where everybody was looking for the next highly inventive science fiction movie. So that was a big point of differentiation. That comparison of George Lucas reminds me a bit of um, Peter Jackson, who took on the Lord of the Rings movies with only a relatively small number of other films just before that. Uh, Again, another moment where perhaps his power within the industry at that stage was not as great as it, you know, subsequently became. It was a big risk. You know, people were rolling the dice to see if this would work. Yes, and in the case of Peter Jackson, for a huge amount of money, a much greater amount than than we did with Star Wars, but turned out pretty well, right? Yeah, yeah, it did okay, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Joe, we've always, when we've had our conversations and we've become genuine friends over the last um, few months, it's been such fun, but you've always told me how much you love working with writers and creatives. So speaking to people out there who may be wanting to be a, a screenwriter or move into that kind of medium, what does somebody sitting in your seat on the production side look for in a script? Is, is it obvious what's going to work or how do you judge which projects to follow and which to let go? You know, Julia, uh, partly it's the quality of execution and partly it's the originality of the, of the idea. And when the two come together, then you, you know, push a green button and say, we want to, we want to do this. Everybody in the film business probably everybody in the oil business and in the automobile business and the insurance business is looking for something new, something to differentiate them from the competition. So certainly in the movie business, it's always a high priority to find something that is going to surprise people, something that's not going to be easily compared to others. So originality is terribly important. By the same token, the studios and the networks as I think you know, Julia, every three months they send out to their trusted colleagues, to their top agents, producers, whatever, uh, what they call the mandates. And the mandates are what we're currently looking for. And the mandates coming from Fox might be slightly different than those coming from Universal or those coming from Paramount or whatever it might be. And similarly on television, there are the network mandates and the three major networks probably. So I'm giving you such a U.S. context, you know, and I don't even know what the U.K. context is for this, but I I would expect it's similar. But I should say that the major institutions that have the funding to select and produce product put out quarterly uh, reports of what they're looking for. And uh, so uh, that is a guideline to agents, managers, producers, whatever, of what to look for in terms of script. But... You know, I take that with a grain of salt because the mandates change with every management change. You know, at any studio, maybe like most companies in other industries, when a new team comes in, the inherited projects have a disability because if they succeed, the new team won't get full credit for them. So the new production senior management team at any studio, and I suspect it's the same in in UK or anywhere, wants to put their stamp on it. So the... uh, 2021 mandates may be irrelevant in 2022, but I think in, in broad stroke, there's a sense that people are looking for something uh, something really new. There are certain things that endure. I think there's a long-term recognition that beautiful, creative, original love stories are hard to find and hard to tell. And if I were to say one genre that 
every entity is always looking for, it would be love stories. There is a shortage of good love stories. So if any of your listeners have uh, a good love story to tell, the door for that will always be open. Science fiction certainly is in the post-Star Wars era, kind of enduring with popularity. Whether that will always be the case, I don't know. But I think beyond science fiction, that we live in a time where fantasy is unlikely to lose its popularity in the foreseeable in the foreseeable future. I dare not say otherwise to you, Julia. You know, escapist entertainment is what people are looking for in, in so many ways. But in terms of advice to a writer, the uh, cliche is to say, write what you know. And everyone always says, write what you know. But if you're writing fantasy, you're not really writing what you know. You're writing what you can dream of, what you can imagine, what might be what you might be seeing in your mind's eye that no one else has seen there. So I wouldn't say write what you know. I'd say write what you enjoy, write what you love, write what you look forward going back to the computer to uh, to pick up again. And uh, and I don't think that writing always needs to be solitary. It's really helpful to get a few good allies, confidants, advisors around you and say, what do you think about this? Is this working? Is this this funny? Is this interesting? Is this scary? Whatever. And uh, I guess only other thought would be if you were writing commercially for the movies or television, which is certainly different than writing creatively in other areas. But if you're writing for movies or television, think of who your audience is. Who are we going to write this for? Uh, I read a script recently by a very good writer. It was an excellent script. And it was a script meant to be uh, to be something something for uh, a, a youth audience uh, focused for under 12. And it was meant to be something that would take kids on a, a happy fantasy adventure. And it was brilliant in many ways, except it was terrifying. The kids got tortured and horrible things happened to them. And I told the writer, nobody's going to touch that movie until you take the terror out of it. If this is a movie for kids... Uh, make it, you know, make it fun. So that's just saying, know who, know who you're, know if you're writing for film or TV, remember that these are big businesses with huge dollars involved. So if you want to write for those media, keep the commercial side in mind as well. So we're living through a time when there is an explosion of, um, content and none of us can find the time to watch absolutely everything. But I've noticed there is, a large number of very big budget fantasy series arriving onto the streaming platforms. Um, we've had Game of Thrones. We've got The Wheel of Time coming. There's The Witcher. And still we've got fantasy films being made. And a lot, a lot of these are also appearing primarily on the streaming platforms. What do you think about the writing you're seeing between these much bigger canvas pieces and the more concentrated possibilities of a film. Do you think that the the bigger budget, big, you know, seasons of stories lose something or are they gaining something? I think good writing is a rare commodity. In the movie and TV business, there are certainly many, many good actors. My wife is a very good actor. She doesn't work nearly as often as she'd like to. Uh, there are far more good actors than there are jobs. There are quite a few gifted filmmakers. There are not that many gen genius filmmakers, but uh, there are a lot of good, competent filmmakers. 
But writers are in short supply. And I would say the most precious commodity in certainly in the entertainment business is good writing. So I do think to some extent with the proliferate, I can't say the word, proliferation of outlets and the uh, expanded demand for content, some writers who may not be quite as good as those who'd be getting the jobs if there was half as much content are doing the writing. So I do think actually that the quality of writing has been diluted, diminished to some degree. I think the the best projects, the projects that can afford to pay for the best writers are still excellent and uh, and will be. But there are, yeah, overall, I would say the quality of writing in ex- especially extended length fantasy production is uh, is an is an endangered species, and that we need to be uh, a little bit aware of that. Maybe there's an upside to that. Maybe it means that not only the five percent of best writers get to write for some of those shows, but that the top ten percent gets to write. So maybe the uh, the second echelon still gets in there. But as one who loves that genre, as I know you deeply love it, uh, hope that the best people will be attracted to it and that the stories will be told well. And uh, but I long answer, and I apologize, but do I worry about a diminution of the quality of writing? I do, yeah. Well, I think that there is an, an, a widening of access, so you're getting new voices coming in, which is positive. But I, Which is very positive. Yeah, I think there is a problem in the tension between putting everybody in a writer's room and then you've got the production demands. And so there's a while it is a golden age for writers, I think there are lots of new pressures that may make it harder for the original person to emerge. We'll see. I think it's a really interesting time. And Julie, I agree with you. That's very positive. And I think the challenge for people who are in the established mainstream media business is to be more creative more open-minded and more aggressive in looking for those new voices, voices of diversity in every way from all around the world to obviously age and gender and race and, and every everything else. Also, one positive thing is that the movie and television businesses have become much more geographically dispersed. And uh, there was time early in my career where we thought we knew every major movie in the world that was being made and that we could track it and we knew who was, how much it cost and who was directing it and how it would compete with what we're doing. No one can do that anymore. And that's really good. Older white male sitting here in Los Angeles, it is a very, very good thing that uh, people like me are an, a decreasing percentage of those who make the movies or those who get to pick the movies. That's, that's really good. Well, I, for one, am extremely pleased that you're there. So, Joe, thank you for that. I mean, there's so much we could talk about, but that's been fascinating. And as part of this podcast, we always have a segment where we, myself and the guests, debate where is the best place in a fantasy world to go. So we've done things like where's the best forest, where's the best bar or tavern. And in your honour and in honour of Star Wars, I thought I'd uh, ask you where you think is the best place to go into space, in which fantasy world. It doesn't have to be a book. It can be a TV series or a film. If you personally were shot up into space, where would you like to be? 
You know, Julie, I love that. I love that question. I might go to Kashyyyk, Kashyyyk, which is the planet of the Wookiees, the planet of Chewbacca and his tribes in the Star Wars movies, uh, partly because I really love apes. So to go to a planet of these highly intelligent, technologically sophisticated, kind, giant monkeys, I would be very happy with that. But also it's a place that George described in some detail as being quite beautiful, uh, jungles, forests, incredibly tall trees, trees like our giant redwoods here in California in a tropical environment. So I think Kashyyyk would be a good place to go. I like Wookiees so much that my secret retirement plan is that, you know, we get all the merchandise from all the movies from whatever studio we're involved with. I have collected Wookiees over the years. I've got a garage full of Wookiees. And if Wookiees become the new Bitcoin, then I will be favored. Excellent. So asking myself the same question, I think um, I was, it's a toss up for me between Star Trek, because I quite like the idea of being part of the Star Trek crew. That sounds quite fun. Yes. But on the other hand, I'm also very fond of the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because it has a certain level of comedy and it makes space seem very relatable. So if you've got a sense of humour, I think the... Yes, I think I'll choose Douglas Adams' space as the one to go into, just because it makes me laugh. It's got some very quotable lines as well. So that's my choice. Oh, Julia, I like that very much. And I was at Fox when we did all the Alien movies, and one of the enduring taglines of the Alien movies was in space, no one can hear you scream. So I agree with you. I'd like to go to, to a place in space where everyone can hear you laugh and where we can all <laughs> laugh, where we can all laugh together. Well, I don't think I can better that ending. So thank you, Joe. Thank you very much for being with us on the Mythmakers podcast. And I look forward to everybody tuning in next time. So thank you very much, Joe. Thank you very much, Julia. Delight to be with you. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide.